Amen. Amen. If you have been standing in your living rooms, you may be seated and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, church. We are back uh, in Romans after a brief, brief rather, break in uh, during the Advent season in Isaiah. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17 is where we're going to make a home uh, this morning. If you're open up your Bible still, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, begin the Gospels, and then you hit Acts, and then you get to Romans. If you get to First and Second Corinthians, go back to the left. Again, my name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square, and it's good to open up uh, back to Romans, and in particular, I think, to be mindful and to reflect on this passage today. See, this passage is all about what it means to be the children of God. And our, our sonship, in a way of framing that childhood or that, that childlike identity specifically, that, that sonship is rooted in something that Paul has been uh, writing in great detail about through uh, chapter 8 that we looked at most of, or throughout all of November, really. He's been comparing two different ways of thinking and being, if you remember. There is the life according to the Spirit, and there is life according to to the flesh. And in verse 5 in Romans chapter 8, so if you've already made your way to verse 12, look up just a few verses in Romans chapter 8 verse 5. It says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. So you see two ways of living. And if you remember, we, we took some cues of understanding what Paul has in mind when he's talking about uh, living according to the flesh or setting our mind on the flesh or setting our mind or living according to the Spirit. We took some cues from uh, North African church father, St. Augustine. And the flesh should not be understood or living according to the flesh is just doing bad things and living according to the Spirit is doing good things. I think Augustine rather teaches, and it's really helpful for us to remember, that we, when we live according to the Spirit, we are living with our loves in order. And when we live according to the flesh, we are living with our loves or our affections out of order. So that means that even living according to the flesh, we may be doing, thinking, and about some really good things, but we may prioritize them inappropriately. We may put them ahead of our affection for God or God's affection for us. We may be looking, for instance, in something like marriage to give us something that only God can give us. We can be looking to our work even though our work is good and a gift from God, we could be looking to our work to give us something or make something happen within our spirit that it never could. We may even be looking to Christmas, right? We just went through that to give us some warm fuzzies and good feelings. And we love Christmas. We watch all those movies, all those movies that get just put out just so you watch them, right? They're not even good, but we do it because it's Christmas, right? We're just looking for some kind of joy. Now, if we're not careful, we, we look to a holiday season to fill us, to bring something to us that it really was never meant to. And this is what Paul is talking about. We live according to the flesh with our loves in disorder, or we live according to the Spirit with our loves in order. This is what took up most of November for us. We live by the Spirit, this life that leads by, is led by the Spirit, meaning that God's affection for us and our affection for Him is the centerpiece of our self-understanding and the way that we understand Him. It's how we understand our identity and His identity, through love for Him and His love for us. Or to put it in the language of our passage today, when we live by the Spirit, or rather we live by the Spirit, when the Father's love tells us who we are. When the Father's love tells us who we are. And I've got to admit to you, confess to you, 
Throughout this past year, many other things have told me more about who I am wrongly than God's love. And so this passage is really centering and helpful for me personally, and I trust it will be for us as a church family as well. See, I, I think there is no better way to start a new year than considering the centrality of the Father's love for you, his daughter, or you, his son. See, otherwise, I think we'll spend another year one of two ways. Either trying to earn the Father's affection through our work, or rather dismissing the Father's affection because of our shame. These are two ways we can approach the Father's love. We don't doubt that it exists, but perhaps in our, in our fallenness and our brokenness and our pride, we believe we can do something in our behavior that would uh, garner the Father's love, or perhaps in our shame. We believe there's so much wrong we've already done or brokenness in us, we could never be worthy of the Father's affection. But this passage tells us something different. See, we either look or rather think we earn the Father's love through our good behavior or that we'll never be worthy of it because we are bad or we are broken or we are riddled with shame. And in God's providence, our passage today, I think tells us something fundamentally true about who it is that we are as children of God. So look at it with me, Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. So then, the Apostle Paul writes, Brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This passage is all about what it means to be a child or the children of God. And with that in mind, I think Paul highlights three things about the nature of of being children or the nature, our nature as children of God. It's our debt as children, our adoption as children, and our privileges as children. So we'll explore those three things. Our debt as children, our adoption as children, and our privileges as children. All I believe that Paul centers himself on in this particular passage in Romans 8, 12 through 17. And to understand this, as always, we need the Lord's help. So let's pray. Uh, and ask him, as his kids, as his sons and daughters, ask the Father for his help as we come to his word. Heavenly Father, I can't even begin to imagine all of the things um, on the hearts and minds of my brothers and sisters, and so it's really comforting to know that you, our Heavenly Father, know already the intricate details of our lives, but also the details of our hearts right now, of our minds. You, you know where our minds are racing you know what is unsettling right now. You know what we're fearful about tomorrow. You know the anxiety that we experienced over the holiday season. You know the joys and the celebration. You know all of those things and the impulses that we had in giving and receiving gifts and being with or being far from family. You are a God who intimately knows us, and so we are simply grateful. And so now as the God who knows us, would you speak to us by your grace, by your love, with your truth, where we are falling apart, would you hold us together? Where we feel 
discomforted and uncertain, would you comfort us? Father, for those of us who are sick, would you heal us? For those of us who are exhausted, would your word give us peace and rest? For those of us who are eager and hopeful about this new year, Father, would you keep us humble and grounded in our relationship with you? We thank you that you do all of this because you love us. We thank you that you do all of this through your word. And so help me to be clear and responsible with your word as we come to a really important text today and idea. And we ask all of this and so much more in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, at the risk of sounding uh, a bit trite, I think Paul seems a bit sidetracked right away in Romans chapter 8. Here's what I mean. First of all, he says, so then. And when you see that kind of language, that language so or therefore, we look back to the preceding text to understand the context that Paul is writing in, which is obviously a transition of what he has just said. So if you're in right there in verse 12, look back up to verse 11. And what does he say? If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So Paul is concluding his thought about life in the spirit, a life with ordered loves. It's life, not death. But it is not a life freed from restrictions. As we explored during the Advent season, the gospel frees us by giving us the right restrictions, not by taking all of the restrictions away, leaving us unencumbered and undirected and without truth. That's the connection. Life in the Spirit is not a life of autonomy, but a life of righteous obligations. That's first. Paul then transitions in verse, from verse 11 by saying in verse 12, so then, or because the Spirit dwells in you, you are debtors. Through the work of Christ, we are under obligation, is what Paul says. But to what? That should be the question. Then entering into verse 12 on in through 17, to what or to whom are we debtors? To whom are we obligated? That's where we'll pick it up in verse 12. Look at it with me. Verse 12 through 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So Paul says that we are debtors, but not to the flesh. Remember, when Paul talks about living according to the flesh, or the flesh in general, he's talking about a life of sin. He's talking about a life of disordered affections. And we owe, Paul is saying, nothing to sin. We owe nothing to this broken world because the life of flesh and the flesh itself has only harmed us and brought death. And, and being beholding to the, or beholden to the flesh or to the passions of this life only breeds and brings more death. It may feel good for a minute, right? This is one of the things that we should admit and confess. Sin feels good for a minute. It feels like something that we should keep doing, but ultimately it always double backs on itself and takes from us. Sin does always takes from us more than it gives us. It always leads to death. See, ultimately our lust for pleasure, power, comfort, money, or whatever it might be only brings death. They never love us back. That's the life of disordered affections. That's the life according to the flesh. And we owe it nothing. We are not debtors to that life. But Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, we put to death the deeds of the flesh today, and we find life. 
There's a clue here for us. See, even though Paul, I think, feels a bit sidetracked and never quite answers his question, or rather explains to whom specifically or to what specifically we are in debt to, because he says we're definitely not in debt to sin, definitely not in debt to the flesh, and he never quite comes around and says, here's who we are in debt to. But even in that sort of roundabout way, we get a clue. We are not debtors to the flesh. It seems what he is suggesting in verse 13 is that we are debtors to the Spirit who brings us life. And this clue, I think, gets crystallized for us in the following verse. Look at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Okay, so again, Paul uses this transition language, which he seems very keen to do throughout chapter 8. He uses the language for. He is explaining how the flesh is put to death and how we find life in the Spirit. And, and what's the answer? I think in a word, it's sonship. If you are led by the Spirit, Paul says, you are a son or daughter of God. So to what or to whom are we indebted? Very precisely, I think what Paul is intimating here is we are indebted to the Heavenly Father. As sons and daughters, we are indebted to the Heavenly Father. And this becomes this new liberating restriction of the life in Christ, the family of God. The family of God tells us who we are. The family of God gives us understanding of ourselves. The family of God even gives us charter, if, a charter, if you will, about how we're supposed to live our lives. Now, this may strike us as odd to think about being a child and being in debt to our father. But I think biblically and even experientially, I think this makes perfect sense. When we are loved well, we experience a kind of obligation to respond to love with what? love. That should be the natural instinct. When you're loved well, you want to love in return, but not as a way of earning that love, the love that we've received, whether from the Father or from someone else, but as a way of responding to the love with joy and gratitude. And there's a fundamental difference. See, if I believe that I have a transactional relationship with someone, I want to return in kind so that we stay even, right? That if someone does something nice for me, I'm going to do something nice for them so that I'm not in debt to them. They can't hang it over my head. But if I know that the Father loves me and he is not trying to hang something over my head to get me to do something, but he simply loves me, I want to respond in gratitude and joy because I know I'm not worthy of his affection. And so I respond in love because I never could earn his love and I'm, I'm obligated by love. I'm controlled by his love. And that's what Paul is saying. We're not obligated or in debt to sin. We've been freed from sin. We're no longer under any obligation to sin in Christ. Rather, we are in debt. We are debtors. We are under obligation. We are in debt to the Heavenly Father through Christ because He is the one who freed us. There's nothing we could ever do to earn that again, but there certainly is a way that we could live out of joy and gratitude with love for the one who loved us first. Now, we may be a little bit nervous about this kind of language, and perhaps rightly so, believing that maybe this threatens the idea of grace. How could grace persist if we are compelled to respond to God in love when he has loved us? I think Paul makes it clear when he writes to the church in Corinth, who just, I think, as extra, this is free, weren't really living in love for God. They were sort of still living in love for themselves, and so the, the message of their obligation to love was really binding them from their autonomy and their frivolous living and their lawlessness in, in Corinth in the first century. And so Paul writes to them who are acting a fool, who are wiling out, doing whatever they pleased. He writes to them and says, you are no longer controlled by sin. See, when we live as we please, we're just revealing that we're controlled and bound up in sin. 
But when we live as God pleases, we are revealing that we are actually controlled by Christ's love. We are compelled by who he is and what he has done for us. That's the life of the flesh or the life of the spirit that Paul's been writing about in in Romans chapter 8. And I think that's what Paul is talking about. As children of God, we are in debt. In response to the gift of the Father's love, we are obligated to love him and others. Not for fear of of something coming down on us or a punitive response from God, but simply out of response to his love. This is primary then in our pursuit of ordering our loves properly. We must see first and foremost that the Father has loved us, and because of his love, we respond in affection to him. So as children, our debt as children is the Father's love. And the thing about debt, if you've ever been in debt, and I've been in some debt before in my life, and still, God bless student loans. My word, right? When you are in debt, you, you truly see all of your life through the lens of that debt. It, it feels like a burden. It feels like something that defines who you are. And a lot of times when it's financial debt, it, it tells you that you should feel shame, that you should feel this sort of weight of guilt because of the debt that you have incurred. But when that weight is the Father's love, and that becomes the lens through which you see all of the world, it's actually liberating. It's a liberating kind of burden that has been placed upon your life, that therefore then the Father's love begins the way, becomes the way that you see your work. It's the way that you see your family, the way you see your home, the way you see your decisions, the way you understand the church that you belong to, the way that you even see yourself. The love of God is meant to control you so much that it is the motivating factor and it's the understanding, the way in which you see all things. And so here's, here's the truth. If there is something in your life that you are not seeing through the lens of the love of the Father, if, if the love of the Father is not the under guiding, the undergirding and the the, the motivating factor of all that you do and say and think, there is a problem there, a misunderstanding of the fact that we are children who are under debt to the Heavenly Father, under under the debt of His love. There's something in that for us to hear and to have the Spirit of God correct and to comfort, because His love, ultimately the Father's love, wakes us up, or rather wakes up a love within us that was not there at first. And I think that's where the second idea comes in mind. That our debt as children is the Father's love. And this debt comes through not some general sentiment of love. This is why I love the gospel. It's not this bland general like God loves you. No, there's a specific thing that Paul is talking about. A very specific act of love. What is it? I'm so glad you asked. Look at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of what? Adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. God does not generally say, I love you, trust me. What God does is he demonstrates his love for us in while we were still orphans and far from the reaches of anyone else's affections. God in Christ came and he adopted us and grafted us into his family. See, underneath the banner of our indebtedness, Paul speaks about our identity. He speaks about who we are. In the flesh, in the life of the flesh, we are slaves. But in Christ, we are sons. Paul is talking about spiritual adoption. He's talking about our spiritual adoption. Two things I'd like to highlight for us about spiritual adoption from this text. I'll try to do this quickly. First, spiritual adoption is inclusive. It's incredibly inclusive. And now at first blush, it may not seem like that when we read this text. See, in the ancient Hebrew world, 
Adoption was much less frequent of a thing than it was in the Greco-Roman world to which Paul was writing. And in Paul's day, adoption was very different than, than what you and I often think about when we think about adoption today. See, by and large, adoption in the first century was about legacy and it was about money. When a wealthy person was perhaps coming to the end of their life, perhaps nearing death, and they had no children, what they would do is they would adopt a male child of just about any age that they would have become the beneficiary of their estate or the heir of that wealthy person's inheritance. It was strictly a financial practice which benefited men exclusively. And so when women perhaps read the language of sonship, they may feel a kind of distance. Perhaps you do today, sister. You feel a bit of distance from that language, a lack of inclusion perhaps within the idea of spiritual adoption. However, that's not the case at all. That's not what Paul is doing here. He is not bending the knee to the culture of his time. He is actually redeeming an idea. Paul is actually doing the opposite. He is taking an institution and system which only benefited men and applying it to men and women. Spiritual adoption is inclusive. So whenever we read sonship in the Bible, we should know that men and women have been adopted by grace through faith into the family of God in the same way that men, when you read about the bride of Christ, you should not simply see that it's gendered language for women, but all of us as men and women who are both part of members of the church of Jesus Christ. Are you with me? That what the scriptures does, scripture does is it takes these gender exclusive terms in the ancient world and applies them in family and in marriage to men and women, whether it is about adoption into the family of God or membership into the church of Jesus. This is why John could say in John 1, 12 through 13, but to all who did receive him, who did, who, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Notice John says to all he gave the right to become children of God. But also notice that God gives this right. It is about his will, not ours. So spiritual adoption is inclusive, but it's also unmerited. And this is a dichotomy that's really important to hold in tension. It's inclusive. It's for any and all, but it is based upon the merits of the Father. It is based upon the will of the Father. It's a quick but very powerful word used twice in verse 15. Paul says that this is what you have received. We did not, he said, receive the spirit of slavery. We received the spirit of adoption. So regardless of the different practices of adoption in Israel or Rome or even today, there is one thing that all of these perspective and respective different adoption ideas have in common. It is the prospective parent who initiates adoption, not the child. It is the prospective parent who initiates See, in the same way, Paul is telling us that our Heavenly Father is the one who has initiated by His love, through His Spirit, and by His one and only natural Son, Jesus Christ, that we become children of God. You hear this? You did not become a child, a son and daughter of God, by your own volition. You did not become a child, son and daughter of God, by your will, by your desire, by your good works, by your behavior. We became a child of God through the gracious, unmerited favor and the will of the Heavenly Father. You know, none of us is born a child of God. 
to be sure, there is one text that a lot of people look at and see that we are all offsprings of God, but that really comes down to the fact that he has created all of us, that he has made, made all he knit together in our mother's womb, that God is the creator of all human life. But there's a very clear reservation within the scriptures of the language of children of God or sons and daughters of God for those who have been called, those who have been redeemed, those who have been predestined according to the will of his love. Only in as much as that we are created by God are we all, regardless of our faith, children of God. But we are not born into the family of God. What the scriptures teach us is that we're born into the family of Adam, our sinful and fallen father. But in God's kindness and by his merit, we receive adoption as sons and daughters because of the will of the heavenly father. So our debt as children is to the heavenly father and his love. And our adoption of children is inclusive and unmerited. And because our adoption is inclusive, and unmerited, there are a host of privileges. There is a host of privileges which come along with being children of God, which are only enjoyed and by, or can be rather enjoyed by all and actually are deserved by none. I'd like to talk about seven of those that I think surface in this particular text. And each of them, I think, confronts a lie that we believe about our identity as children of God. See, because the word, I think, privilege can have a pretty pejorative meaning these days, let me define it for us before we move forward with the list. I think a definition that is faithful to this text and faithful to the scriptures. A privilege is a reward which has been given by grace to children of the Father on the merits of Christ and by the power of the Spirit of God. So a privilege is a reward which has been given to the children of God based on the merits of Christ, and by the power of the Spirit. Therefore, these privileges are, are not ours because of us. Hear this. They are ours because of God. That's what makes them a privilege. They are not a right. In and of ourselves, we do not deserve them. They are, they are privileges bestowed upon us. But they are not for everyone or just anyone, but for only for those whom the Father has adopted. It comes with the family. So unlike the presumption of privilege that we can think we are owed in this life because of race or gender or wealth or status in this society, spiritual privileges are granted to those who have renounced all of their rights in this life and have been adopted by God. Are you with me? Look at verse 15 through 17. And let's discern the privileges that come with being the children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I'm feeling, sensing a little urge in my spirit to go quickly through these. Uh, because of my time, but I just want to be straight with you. I'm not going to make my time today, whatever it arbitrarily has been made in my mind to be. I really think we need to take time to look and explore these seven privileges. So God help us. I, the, these seven privileges I have, I've stolen from Dr. Tim Keller and tried to organize them in a way that I think is helpful for us and maybe in language that is familiar to us. I stole them from him in his book, uh, Romans for You, on his chapter on this particular passage. So that's where the inspiration comes. The first one that we see, the first privilege that we see here in verse 15 that we get as children of God is security. Security. Notice in verse 15, we did not receive a spirit of slavery, which leads to what? 
fear. Fear is ultimately about a vision of an unsettled or undetermined future, right? So fear comes from the absence of security. And many of us live in fear, do we not? I mean, few things have probably marked our stories more than fear over these past two years. The invisible foe of this virus has threatened all of the things that we love and are precious and normal to us. There is a real heavy dose of fear that the children of God have been wading through these past couple of years. And as slaves to sin, there are things to fear. We should fear things like death, suffering, pain, and isolation. Why? Because these are all pending consequences for sin. In a slave mentality, we try then to dispel fear through hard work and pleasing the slave master. This is the kind of behavior that comes with the life of the flesh. All of life then is about not angering the one who has authority over us. Some of us believe this lie about God, about the Heavenly Father and ourselves right now. And that's what it is. It is a lie. God is not watching over your life, being ready for any excuse he has to slam consequence on you and harm on you and to take away the good and pleasing things that he has in store for your life. But many of us do have a view of God like a slave master. Like we have to live our lives. Don't get him angry. Don't disappoint him. Or consequences are sure to come. See, as as children... We don't have to live in fear because we have security. As children, we do not perform for our father for fear of him, for fear of his rejection or fear that he might hurt us. Rather, we have security of our identity as sons and daughters because of the father's love. See, one of the lies that we believe is that we ought to live in fear of God. But he is saying in this text to us that you have security as sons and daughters, and you don't have to fear the future, and you certainly do not have to fear the Heavenly Father. That's a privilege we've been given as the children of God, to live without fear, to live with security. Secondly, we can live with power. We don't have to live in fear as children because through the Spirit he has given us authority. He's given us power. In other words, a slave has no right to enjoy the home of their master as if they are owners. But children do, and can I just holler at my children for a second? You sure do, right? We sure behave as children in our parents' home as if we run that joint, right? With appropriate limits, though, children do have privileges within the home of their parents. Things like turning on the television, opening the refrigerator as if they bought all those groceries, right? And even calling things in the home or the home themselves, what? Mine, right? Children have this privilege to call things that they didn't purchase, nor things they even understand or could possibly fathom their own. That is a brilliant privilege. We see it illustrated in our families, and this to be sure is true of our spiritual family, because being a part of the family gives you power and authority. However, The residue of slavery is real. The residue of slavery and sin says that we are always going to be second-class citizens in our father's home. Sin tells us don't really enjoy all of those privileges because you don't deserve them. That yes, I'm in the family, but I'm a kind of annoying child. I'm too much. And so like the prodigal son, we come home to the father, right? You know this story. And we begin to tell our father in our mind, I want to come back to your home, but I'll just still be a slave because I know I don't deserve to come into your house as if I am a son, as if I am a daughter, as if I am truly your child. But children do have authority. 
And children do have power in the Father's house because he has given that to you to enjoy the things that he has given you by grace through his spirit. So children have security, children have power, and children also have intimacy. Look at that last bit of verse 15. It tells us that we not only belong to God and have authority and security with him, but we also have intimacy with the Father. Think about that. Notice the language that Paul says, with which we can speak to the God of the universe. Abba, Father. Abba is Aramaic. It's the equivalent to saying daddy or papa or whatever the affectionate name that you spoke of your father perhaps growing up. It's a term of endearment, which only makes sense. Hear this. It only makes sense if intimacy is real within the relationship. I mean, think about it. Intimacy in language is actually offensive if there's not intimacy in relationship. If you speak with intimate words towards someone with whom you do not have intimacy in relationship with, it is harmful, it is offensive, and in many ways, it's sinful and you need to repent. But when we have intimacy with the Father in relationship, we get to speak intimate language with him. And I think many of us struggle with this. Struggle simply being with the Lord in an intimate context and fellowship by the power of his Spirit. Or as Marva Don, I think, has brilliantly put it, we have a hard time simply letting the Lord take care of us. Simply letting the Lord take care of us. I think Don sees this intimacy and the depth of the purpose of Sabbath rest in the nature of our relationship with God when she writes this, a great benefit of Sabbath keeping is that we learn to let God take care of us, not by becoming passive and lazy, but in the freedom of giving up our feeble attempts to be God in our own lives. Brothers and sisters, I think one of the reasons we don't enjoy more intimacy with our Heavenly Father is because we're too busy trying to prove to God that we're God. We're too busy trying to prove to God that we are independent and on our own, and therefore we won't be vulnerable with Him. And this is why we're exhausted, by the way. Do you know that only children really rest? Only children really rest. I mean, think about this. Over the past couple of weeks, my children have had no obligations. They've had zero obligations. They've had nothing to worry about. Sure, maybe school was going to come or not. They're not really sure what that's going to be like. But they've been chilling, watching movies on repeat. They've been enjoying snacks and food that they will probably not eat for another six months, right? They've just been at rest. They've been chilling. Well, we've been like hustling on the internet, looking at, oh, like, oh my gosh, did you see what they said? Oh my goodness, can you believe that? Oh my gosh, did you read the latest thing here? And we're all freaking out and we're all so tired at the end of a break. Only children really rest. Only the children of God truly know this peace because we know that the Father is taking care of us. We know that the Father is taking care of us. We don't have to take care of ourselves. You see, we struggle, I think, with the silent intimacy of the Lord's presence because we disbelieve He has truly drawn near to us in Christ. In other words, intimacy is a fruit of vulnerability. And the brilliance of the gospel is that God in Christ was vulnerable first. In Christ, we open, or rather, in Christ, He opened Himself up to meaningful risk and even death on the cross. And then He invites us to do the same. This is the love of the Father. He says, I will be intimate first. I will be exposed, or rather vulnerable first. I will be exposed to meaningful risk first. And then I'm going to invite you into that intimate relationship. All for the sake of union and communion 
with his children. So we have intimacy as children with the Heavenly Father. That's part of the privilege. We also have assurance. From security, power, and intimacy, Paul then celebrates the privilege of assurance that we have, which is related to security, but there's a, a different level of this. Look at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I think it's easy to believe that eternity is out of reach and struggle to conceive and even trust that God has prepared a place for his people in the age to come. It's hard to fathom that. That there is an assurance in the age to come. We can easily believe the lie that God's family then is not forever. That it's kind of nice to have community in this life, but who knows what's going to happen after we die. Who knows what's going to happen in the age to come. But God's Spirit knows And God's Spirit gives us assurance and gives assurance to the people of God. He directs and guides and corrects. And and Paul says he even testifies to our hearts about the reality of God's will and his word that we are assured and reassured that God is real and alive and has secured our place as his people forever. And so when we see the evidence of God's Spirit in our life or in the life of our brothers and sisters, that is a deep and abiding assurance that we have a privilege that we have as children to rest in the Father's work, to rest in the Father's love. So we have security, we have power, we have intimacy, we have assurance, and we also have an inheritance. See, in connection with assurance, the children of God have an inheritance. Namely, Paul says that we are heirs with Christ. Think about that. That, that with Christ, all these privileges do not belong to us naturally or else they'd be rights. The only child for whom these privileges are rights, are natural, is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only natural heir to the Heavenly Father. However, by grace, the same rights and rewards which only Christ deserves are given to the sons and daughters of God by faith. Listen to how Jesus actually speaks about, he's talking to his Heavenly Father. Listen to how the Son of God speaks to the Heavenly Father about the whole family of God. Listen to this. John chapter 17, verse 22. This is so good. Thank you, God. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. Notice Jesus speaks of glory and love and union that he has enjoyed as the eternal son with his heavenly father in eternity past. An inheritance that waits for him in the future is now an inheritance that he sees, that Jesus understands that belongs now to us, an inheritance of the children of God. We share in the inheritance of Christ. That's a privilege his glory, his love, a union with him forever. Six, correction. may seem odd, but correction is a privilege within the family of God. Because, I mean, when I thought about this, I was like, yeah, I, I correct other children, 
But that correction is mild, and it's rarely, I hope, ever painful. But the correction and discipline I give to my own children are motivated by love and intimacy and assurance and all of these things that we've just spoken about is constant, it's severe, it's shaping, and it's often long-suffering. But to repeat myself a lot, as my parents repeated themselves a lot with me. See, Paul connects our inheritance as heirs with our suffering as the family of God in verse 17. There's something, in other words, about suffering within and even as a family, which legitimizes our union together. Yet we often believe the lie that the presence of suffering and and pain is the absence of God's presence and love. We have told ourselves that when life gets hard, where is God? He must not be close. And yet Proverbs 3.12 tells us that the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. See, correction and discipline and leading through suffering is an extension of the father's affection for us, not his absence from us. This too is a privilege of sonship, of being his children. Lastly, joy. I think there's a particular kind of joy that is unique to every family. I mean, think about the dumb things you laugh about as a family that if you told anybody about, they would look at you like, what are you even talking about, right? If I told you some of the things that my family and I spend a lot of time joking about, especially at the dinner table, right? You'd be like, that's dumb. That's not funny at all. There's a special kind of joy unique within every family. There are ways of celebrating in your family that others would find ridiculous, Those are unique privileges of joy that come within the family. And in similar fashion, to belong to the family of God is to know a joy which is foreign to the rest of the world. In understanding, in experience, Paul says this in verse 17, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that what? We may also be glorified with him. See, through suffering, the children of God experience glory. This is an uncommon brand of joy. Only those in Christ really know. We believe that that often avoiding suffering will bring joy. That's the lie. And so as children, we try to elude any amount of discomfort or any amount of pain. But in Christ, through our adoption, we have found life on the other side of death, haven't we? We have found a celebration on the other side of sorrow. And as Paul says here, we have found a glory on the other side of suffering. See, as the children of God, we are privileged with a joy which has overcome all despair. These are the privileges that we have as the children of God. These are not things that are bestowed upon us simply because we are walking and talking and moving around on our own. These are given to us through the mercy and love and affection of our Heavenly Father who has adopted us in an inclusive and an unmerited adoption. We have security in the Father. We have power in the Father. We have intimacy with the Father. We have assurance with the Father. We have an inheritance because of the Father. We are corrected and disciplined as a privilege given to us by the Heavenly Father. And we have a joy as the children of God. What a privilege. Our debt as children is the Father's love. Our adoption as children is inclusive and unmerited. Our privilege as children confronts these lies of who we are and we find ourselves most fundamentally to be the children of God, the sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father. You see, this passage is about what it means to be a child of God, and it's really good news 
over and against the lies that you and I believe, whether they were instructed by our earthly parents or informed by our relationship in our own families, lies that we believe that we are unlovable, lies that we believe about our personhood. What the Father's love does is it compels and controls us. It reworks and rewires our hearts and minds. In fact, it gives us a new heart, which is compelled to respond to the Father's love with love for him and love for others. And it's not a general kind of love, is it, church? It is a particular specific love of adoption that you have been adopted and grafted into the family of God. And his love has overwhelmed us with eternal privileges that only Christ deserved they have been bestowed upon you. See, in the Father, we have received by grace what only the Son of God deserves. And that's what it means to be his kids. That's who you are. That's who I am. We are the children of God. And so, Heavenly Father, we worship you. We thank you. We ask, would you help us to believe this? Would you help us to be anchored in this? Would you help us to see ourselves as sons and daughters? Would you help us to see each other as brothers and sisters? And would you help us to see ultimately and to be grounded ultimately in this deep and abiding affection that the Father has for us? We are no longer slaves to fear. We are children of God. And so we worship you. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, everybody agreed and said, amen.